Hey doggy folks, welcome back to the Bark Side of the Moon podcast. In today's episode, myself and Anne begin what will become a series of episodes all about puppies. We begin today by first speaking about how a puppy becomes a quote-unquote great dog. So, whether you're thinking of adding a puppy to your home, or if you've already done so and need some help at knowing a little or a lot more about them, this and the next few episodes are for you. We talk about genetics, epigenetics, breeding, the whole nature versus nurture debate, and much, much more. So, we hope you enjoy. Welcome back. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks very much. Good to have you back as always. Thank you. Love being here. So we were talking a while back about um, stuff again, uh, what we were going to do in, in uh, upcoming podcasts. And that's something we were going to actually start with was was something to do with puppies. Um, and we got wrapped up in other uh, <laughs> so much more other important topics, topics yeah. before now. But um, I think it's... Um, a good idea to do it we've a lot of um, puppy related topics so we were going to do a kind of a series of them and um, starting uh-huh. with this one um today so summertime is often a time when people consider adding a puppy to their lives and um, not exclusively of course uh, as, especially in recent years for many it's felt almost as if puppies are arriving kind of all of the time now. <laughs> yeah. So it's a huge decision to make and can, of course, be one of the best decisions you'll ever make to add yeah. a dog to your life. But it also may well be one of the most difficult things you'll ever experience for lots of reasons. <laughs> um, so we've talked about how we could help people who are currently considering adding a puppy to their home. And so we've come up with a list of, of these kind of topics to discuss over the next few episodes uh, that we think can help prepare them to make better decisions from the beginning. And that will hopefully help them set up their new pup to be the dog they always dreamed of having over time mm-hmm. uh, with a bit of luck. So <laughs> let's start with this one. <laughs> An easy answer, of course. Uh, how does a puppy become a great dog, Anne? Oh, well, that's a really simple answer. I just wish I had like a magic wand and could give you one soundbite that would just fix the whole thing. Do it. So, yeah, 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 I wish. I'd be out of a job, but yeah, yeah. I wish. I wish we could just do that. So I suppose um, it's not just that a puppy becomes a great dog because a whole lot of stuff that happens before a puppy is even born mm-hmm. um, contributes to what that puppy is going to grow into as an adult dog. So, so we're going to be talking about things like genetics and what the parents and other family members of that dog brings to the plate, uh, what happens to a puppy when they're in their mummy's um, uterus is going to be uh, impacting what's going to happen to them as and how they mature and how mm-hmm. how resilient they are in relation to stress and other like wider health implications. And we might even talk about a very, very kind of new-ish immature field referred to as epigenetics, which looks at factors mm. that affect how genes are expressed or not um, from generation to generation. And that can also impact um what puppy is going to become so even before puppy is even born we are talking about things that need to be considered um on the way uh, you know for our puppy to become a great dog <laughs> so it's very complicated <laughs> i'm afraid <laughs> yeah <laughs> so okay next question what then is involved in the responsible breeding of a dog then i suppose the first level of responsibility comes with the decision to breed and we do want if if dogs are going to be produced we do want it to be 
a conscious decision, uh, <laughs> which is far more preferable and that there's preparation in place and it's not just accidental, mm-hmm. um, you know, that there has been consideration that's gone into selecting the parents, considering the genetics that they might bring, considering their health, considering their behavioral tendencies. Um, there, you know, in domestic dogs, um, there is a real gene pool problem, like the gene pools for most breeds and, and domestic dogs as a whole is pretty small. Um, there are lots of breeding practices that have contributed to that, such as popular sires. So choosing mm. the same daddy dogs over and over and over and over mm. again. Um, we've gone out of our way to very finely select dogs, um, you know, that, that bring specific characteristics usually or often physical characteristics in more modern times Mm -hmm. that's kind of happened so it's to kind of maintain and breed type and this has contributed to a wide range of inherited disorders Mm. um and that we see in dogs so much so that they're they've kind of become of great interest to science now as we learn more about genetics and the effects of an inherited disorders and also we see a lot of problems relating to exaggerated features that might include behavior but also might affect behavior mm. so just the very decision you know to consider breeding dogs we have to take into account health at all of those levels and one of the problems is of course is that inherited disorders might not show up in an individual dog until they're mature mm. um, or until they're several years um, older and we certainly have some genetic tests for some of the um, genetics based disorders where we've identified um, the genetics that contribute to a particular disorder developing and that's certainly helped because that means that an individual uh, breeding dog can be screened um, before breeding them mm-hmm. um, but really that's for such a teeny tiny proportion of the dog genome and it's really for a teeny tiny proportion of the inherited um, disorders that might be present there mm-hmm. so you know yes looking for health tested individuals you know and health testing is something that people often talk about but I often refer to that as disease testing because mm-hmm. because we're testing for such a small range of um, disorders or potential disorders or contributors to potential disorders um, that we're missing a whole lot and the way that dogs are bred because gene pools are so small mm-hmm. um, that means that there can be recessive conditions hiding in the gene pool out there that we yeah. don't know about until there's been a few generations of breeding and mm-hmm. again because those disorders might not show up like the the dog might not be symptomatic until they're six or seven or maybe even older Mm. um and they may have already sired many many litters at that point which means that there's a high proportion of the the population that now have inherited those conditions Mm. so you know really that's just one level of this and we're obviously you know going to talk about behavior because that's my area i suppose mm-hmm. um but i have a keen interest in that as well because of the impact it has on the health of dogs um mm-hmm. and i'm very interested in in breeds a dog and i'm very interested in dogs in general of course um, mm-hmm. um so you know but but from a behavior point of view we also see exaggerations in behavior and that's something that's happened as a result of domestication we've exaggerated certain parts of for example the canid predatory sequence of behaviors so we have you know dogs like my dog where bite chasing biting and holding has been exaggerated mm-hmm. where dogs like your dog um the stalking and chasing and and uh, biting and grabbing has been exaggerated to mm-hmm. do their job. And if we take hard-eyed herders like border collies, where you know very particular type of stalking mm-hmm. and chasing has been you know been been exaggerated um, and selected for, so that we have these breeds of dog and types of dogs that that have um, 
kind of extra, um, you know, behavior, um, mm-hmm. extra emphasis on certain types of behavior. Um, and, and that is having an impact just as much as the often discussed things like Brexophilia and stuff like that, you know, the short nosed mm-hmm. dogs and, and Boas and the, and the related breathing and breathing conditions, uh, related mm-hmm. to that. But we also see issues with these kind of exaggerations in behavior as well. Um, and mm-hmm. recent research, uh, that's looked at, um, heritability of behavior in dogs has found, you know, that's and it's kind of backed up what we already understand about this, but really the dog's family. So their family members are the best predictor of their behavior. So we can, mm. we can certainly take into considerations like breed and go, okay, well, this, this type of dog has been bred to show an exaggerated version of this behavior for generation after generation after generation but and that's certainly a starting point in terms of our considerations but then we need to look at well what are the family what are what are this dog's brothers and sisters like what are their parents like what are their aunties and uncles like what are their grandparents like and that gives us a a, a well-rounded picture then of you know what the sort of behavioral tendencies that this puppy is more likely to show so Mm. as you can tell this is like a super complicated thing yeah of course and, you know, as we learn more about um, genetics and we learn more about dogs and dogs are often a model species for our studies of genetics because of, of the way that their gene pool is structured um, <clears throat> because of selection. Um, it's it, we have to take more into account, you know, when we do when we know better, we can do better. Mm. And that's something that that really, you know, must be emphasized now um, as mm. we move forward to make sure that the dog population as a whole, whether they're mixed be- breeds or pedigree dogs or, mm. you know, everything else in between, that we make sure that the dog population as a whole is is a healthier um healthier from a genetic point of view. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even after we consider that, there is also this field of epigenetics that looks at how different genes might be expressed under different environmental conditions. Mm-hmm. And um, this might be relevant if we have had a mother dog or a potential mother dog, so a dam or a sire, a, a dad dog um, or a potential dad dog, if they've gone through a lot of distress, for example, mm-hmm. even before they've bred, mm-hmm. um, that stress may, might affect how the genes they um, contribute to the next generation are expressed in their puppies. So they might have mm-hmm. puppies that are more sensitive to stress, for example, mm-hmm. um, because that's something that suited uh, an ancestor um, and um, in, in the in whatever under whatever environmental conditions they were under at the time Mm. so that's relevant as well so dogs that have been exposed to a lot of stress for example environmental stress might um that might have implications for uh, their puppies that might not be born for months or even years um on in time so all Mm. of those things are considerations even before we decide that this dog and this dog are going to have babies, basically, mm-hmm. we have to take those things into consideration and it can become a very complicated process mm, as a result. Be. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. Mm, it should sure. be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> You're so, sorry you asked. <laughs> no, I love it. It's great. Let's keep going. Okay. So um, let's talk about, say, environment. Okay. So yeah. what impact does the environment which the breeding dogs live in have on those dogs and their puppies? So, in you know, when people talk about genetics and environment, they take, say nature versus nurture. Mm-hmm. That's a really inaccurate statement. It's mm-hmm. always nature plus nurture. The two mm-hmm. things go together. Mm-hmm. So 
all of that genetic and epigenetic stuff is relevant in terms of behavior is relevant depending on the environmental conditions. Mm. So once the decision has been made for a mommy dog and a daddy dog to have baby dogs, um, mm. the, the genetic stuff is happening. And everything then that happens from conception on is is really environmental. So what mm. happens um, that puppy from the time it's conceived if its mum experiences a lot of stress uh, in her life, whether that might be nutritional stress, maybe she's in a situation where she doesn't have enough food, that mm. might be um, environmental stress. So environmental challenge, such as, you know, living in an under-enriched environment, living in um, unsuitable conditions, that stuff will actually have an impact on those puppies that are developing in her womb. Mm. So all of that is going to, so all of that from that, point of conception, then all of those environmental factors are going to dictate how those genetics are going to suit or not suit the world in which this puppy is going to be brought into. So environment is everything, Mm. because once the gene team has had their go, which is something that Gene Donaldson says, that's it. We can't do anything about that then. That stuff then is in place. And what we're doing then is, is we're going, well, behavior happens in the environment. Mm -hmm. So, and it's not to relegate the importance of genetics. They're incredibly important, but the environment is so influential because that's what will determine how well this genetic stuff is going to work or not. Mm. So, that early rearing environment that that puppy is exposed to from the time of conception. So the earliest rearing environment, of course, is the womb. And mm-hmm. they're there for about 63 days. And then they're born. So everything that uh, that puppy has been exposed to via mum is going to impact the puppy that's actually born um, when, when um, he, you know, he arrives into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that early rearing stuff is particularly important because it's going to determine how that dog's brain develops, setting their attitude up to the world Mm. for life. Mm. And what can be difficult for people to understand is, is that actually a little bit of carefully presented early life stress, so challenge, if you like, Mm -hmm. is required for brain growth. So there were terrible classical experiments that were done with kittens and they were done with other species as well, including monkeys, Mm -hmm. where, um, you know, a kitten would be blinded surgically Mm -hmm. at certain ages. And if they were blinded very, very early on during the time at which the visual centers of the brain were developing, they may never develop sight in that eye. But if Mm -hmm. they were surgically blinded and then it reversed later on after the visual centers of the brain had um, developed, their sight was unaffected. And what that kind of tells us is, is that the brain has to be challenged. So appropriate mm-hmm. challenge has to be exposed to the brain um, when uh, at the right time. So for the, that brain to actually develop. So for example, when puppies are just starting to open their eyes, um, and they're, you know, we're counting their age in days at this stage. And um, they're, you know, kind of between the two and three week mark, usually um, when they're just first opening their eyes, they the brain for the, the visual parts of the brain to actually develop the they actually need to be exposed to visually interesting things. Mm. When the ears are opening, they need to be exposed to to, to carefully to mm. things that are relevant to that sense. When they start to move about, they need to be um, exposed to different um, kind of sensory experiences and different challenges in terms of locomotion and stuff like that. So that mm. they're getting the brain is getting the opportunity to get feedback from the environment and develop um, appropriately. Mm. So a little bit of appropriate 
early life stress is actually really important, but we have to be very, very careful with that. The challenge that we present you know, for those puppies, um, it can't be something that's unsurmountable. It has to be within their capabilities. It has to just push them enough for brain development, but mm. not so much that not it causes much. damage mm. um, and, or overwhelms them, which can be damaging to the developing brain. So and to the developing sensory organs and everything else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so that's incredibly difficult to get that balance right. And we need to have real careful consideration for that. And then, of course, we have to take into account the sort of maternal care that the puppy gets and the sort of interactions puppy has with his or her litter mates Mm. and both of those things appear to have um impacts on on uh, on how puppies are going to develop how their brain is going to develop and we think that litter mate interactions are probably going to be a little bit more impactful Mm. because dogs are probably going to spend more time with their litter mates Mm -hmm. um, than uh, with their mum mum will often you know in a natural setting which you know dogs don't really do but (laughs) in a natural setting mum would only visit the litter irregularly so that she doesn't Mm -hmm. draw attention to the nest I suppose um, and keep everybody safe so they're hanging out together with their siblings um, most of the time and you know again very little research really exists on all of this stuff but the little bit that does tells us that the sort of litter mate interactions they have will have a big impact on you know shaping their social behavior for example mm-hmm. shaping their conflict resolution um shaping their stress resilience all of that is going to have an impact on um on on how they're going to cope in social situations as adults and the sort of maternal care they receive as well if mum is stressed she will be displaying stress related behaviors to her puppy so there's mm-hmm. that video of that golden retriever that's put oh, into a yeah. room with puppies and the puppies swarm her because that's what puppies do uh, when mum is, is released and she has nowhere to escape from them and her puppies no. are getting quite large so she's probably mm-hmm. actively weaning or has been actively weaning them yeah. Um, and she, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. oh yeah and they've got their little sh- sharp teeth at that mm-hmm. stage and you know you can imagine we don't like sharp teeth in our hands so you can <laughs> imagine it if they're sensitive nipples that's going to be you know a different situation altogether um, and she displays a lot of strong stress related behaviour mm-hmm. um, and And that, even those short interactions, that's not normal. And I wouldn't consider that appropriate and I wouldn't allow that to happen. And I know a lot of the internet commentary is like, oh, look at her disciplining her Mm. puppies or whatever. Um, And I I wouldn't find that appropriate now. And that would tell me that this mama dog needs some space and she needs an escape route and she needs to be able to choose how she interacts with them. And they Mm. need probably need more space and they probably need more appropriate interactions and and uh, and lots of other things need to be in place uh, as well. But Mm. certainly, though, even those short stress-related interactions can have a big impact on puppies' development because puppy is using the social models that they have around them as as the things that give them information about the world. They don't have the capability to take that information in for themselves. And so if mum is stressed, well, their brain is going to be more likely to be developing, um, you know, a tendency towards stress because if mum is scared, well, obviously the world is a stressful place Mm -hmm. and that's, I need to be prepared for that. So that's very relevant and important as well. So there will be environmental setups that we need to do to make sure that mum is happy and that the litter mates are happy with one another I mean, if you have siblings, you understand the complexities in doing this and and your parents or caregivers probably did their best, but it's very challenging to do, particularly as siblings age, it can become very tense. So there's a lot of factors involved in getting the environmental setup right. And we have to consider, well, what are the potential genetic stuff that these these puppies or this puppy has inherited so what are the deficits that we're possibly making up for as well so it intertwines all the time and is a complex um thing i suppose yeah 
It's not easy, obviously. Mm-mm. Yeah. Not not to get it right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's easier <laughs> to get it wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So after all of that, if yeah. someone now has a puppy who didn't come from a great background, is all lost or is there still hope? Um, no, I wouldn't say all is lost. Obviously, you know, we want to do as much as we can to pitch everything in our favour and to make sure that our puppy has the best um, early experiences, the best pre-birth experiences, the best rearing environment, the best genetics of, you know, that are possible can, that can go into this and all the rest of it. And, you know, even doing all of that, dogs are still, you know, animate creatures that, you know, mm-hmm interact with their environment and all those sorts of things so so it's still a complex mash mishmash of stuff that goes into making you know puppy grow into a great dog so Mm. you know i don't think all hope is lost it can certainly be more challenging Mm -hmm. and i think one thing that tends to happen is is that if people have a shy dog or Mm. a slightly nervous dog or a shy or nervous puppy and they tend to to think immediately that that dog had been abused oh yeah And what I would say there is um, it's not impossible that could absolutely have happened, sadly, Mm -hmm. but it's far more likely that that puppy didn't get enough appropriate exposure Mm. early on. It's far more likely that that has been the foundation Mm. for leading to that dog having difficulty with coping with stress um, as an adolescent or as an adult, particularly. Mm. So we might see all sorts of deficits that could indicate that um, that include, you know, difficulty settling, difficulty recovering from when, you know, excitement of being wound up Mm -hmm. to more severe things like, you know, full on fear, anxiety related behavior, aggressive related behavior. So all hope is not lost because it's never lost. Behavior is incredibly um, modifiable by its Mm. very definition. So we can modify the environmental conditions in order to help that dog. And there are obviously physical contributors that we can put in place to help that dog as well. So all hope is not lost. Get help as early as possible. I think we say this every time, (laughs) but get help as early as possible um, so that we can put something in place as quickly as possible. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I know you, you, you spoke about it a little bit earlier on, but just to, to go back and to be kind of clear about it. So if the mother or the father of the puppies yeah. is kind of a nervous or anxious dog. Right. Does that mean then that the puppies will also be nervous and or anxious? It can happen. Depending um, on the environment, of course, because I know the environment right, is a big yeah, player too. Yeah. I mean, you know, Adaptive behavior like fear, right? So fear, Mm. when we say it's adaptive, what we mean by that is, is that animals that show fear, i.e. avoid danger and possibly avoid danger earlier and earlier and earlier, Mm -hmm. those animals are more likely to live long enough to, you know, not get eaten by a predator, Mm -hmm. live long enough to uh, pass on their kind of slightly fearful, um, slightly edgier genetics to the next generation. So the next generation is more likely to have more individuals that, that, that work that way because mm-hmm. if that works in the world so that's what we mean by adaptive um so adaptive behavior is quite likely to be you know highly heritable um because you know that makes sense just from a kind of an evolutionary point of view mm-hmm. um now of course with dogs we've selected for all sorts of exaggerated and inhibited versions of kind of different responses for dogs to live with us and for to, to do um jobs for us and things like that so that's going to have an impact on behavior and you know sometimes we do or we have selected for dogs that are going to be a little bit less social sometimes we're going to 
um, select for dogs that are terribly overly social. Yeah. You know, this kind of hyper sociality. And so what you're going to see then in any one group of dogs, there's going to be a kind of a bell curve. So you're going to have the norm mm-hmm. and then you're going to have the outliers that are either more or less of, you know, the kind of exaggeration or inhibition of these responses. Mm-hmm. So within any one kind of population of dogs, we can have some that are going to be, you know, more like the typical norm and some that are, you know, in, in one direction and some that are, are are less like that in another direction. So um, so you can absolutely, you know, this can absolutely be supported by genetics because there, there, there is likely to be a kind of a heritable quality to it. And at the same time, I will say that the way that heritability works, particularly in relation to behaviour, is incredibly complicated mm-hmm. and it's not just this, you know, straight from dad yeah. to baby and, no, and that's what they're like. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff has to happen there. Um, but, you know, I would say that we're probably more likely to mm-hmm. see, you know, kind of these tendencies if they've come from family members that, that are showing those tendencies. So certainly, again, playing the odds, we want to have everything on our on our side, you know, so picking mm-hmm. um, individuals to breed that are, are robust mm-hmm. and very resilient in relation to stress is probably going to be the most helpful thing. But even then, a very robust dog could still have a puppy that's timid. Um, and again, oh, yeah. because we have this bell curve, you know, of, of kind of tendencies. Yeah. Mm. So that can it can happen both ways. But definitely we want to tip things in our favor, um, yeah. you know, which gives us the best chance. Yeah, of course. OK, cool. Um, so some working dog um, organizations in, in particular would, would run things like early socialization and habituation programs before placing the puppies um, yeah. like us. Okay. Mm-hmm. So do these kind of programs of like early socialization, habituation and exposure, for example, have like a positive impact on the resilience of puppies long-term in your opinion? Yeah, I think so. And certainly in, yeah, in my opinion and in my experience, I would say that yes, that we're do you know, and that's really an example of just how important the environment is mm-hmm. because when we get them as early as possible and particularly when we get them while the brain is still growing. So the brain is kind of, you know, the brain is, is in place. The hardware I like to say for the brain is in place by the time puppies are about six weeks ish mm-hmm. of age. Um, and of course they're still putting down the software for months and months and months and even years after that. But really mm-hmm. the intensive period of time when puppy is developing their kind of attitude to the world mm. is really the first kind of three or four months. Mm. Um, and there's all sorts that we could argue back and forth, all the different ideas about that, but in general, okay. Yeah. And so in, in that period, we have the opportunity to more efficiently make up for, you know, any deficits that are there because the genetics, because of the mum's experience during pregnancy, mm-hmm. for example, because of littermate issues, because of early rearing deficits, um, you know, so if we can get them within those within those kind of first few months, we're doing the best we can. Now, what I will say is, is that generally speaking, puppies pre five weeks don't tend to show a full fear response. They no. show a startle response. It's kind of a reflexive kind of mm-hmm. jump away from something and then kind of just move on straight away. But they start to show more brain involvement in their fear response post five weeks. Again, this is an average, so it can change. Mm-hmm. Um from you know from individual to individual Mm -hmm. and i would generally say that if a puppy presents as shy or fearful or kind of standoffish pre-five weeks they're probably going to be you know have a tendency towards shyness uh, or fear or whatever 
as adults uh, that tends to be the pattern again there's going to be exceptions to this mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure there'll be people with examples of exceptions yeah, yeah, to of this course, yeah. um, because you know none of this is written in stone but but certainly in my experience and the experience of colleagues that that would definitely be what I've seen mm. uh, with with puppies um, and I, like puppies are like my jam they're absolutely my thing I will surround myself with litters of puppies mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. every possible uh, opportunity I will just bathe in puppies and all of that and I love it I just love every moment of it um <laughs> and so I've been around a lot of puppies and uh, litters of puppies um and um generally speaking the pattern would be if they're f- shy and fearful you know and or maybe not as resilient and robust as their as their siblings by the time they're kind of five-ish weeks um then I'm definitely going to be thinking about a plan a very specific for this p- plan for this puppy post five weeks and throughout this kind of uh period of behavioral development and into adulthood as well Mm. so you know if we're getting this right if the puppy is lacking in some area we have to remember that overloading them with experience isn't going to help and you know problems will arise or can arise not just from a lack of social and environmental exposure so somebody you know somebody might say oh well the puppies were neglected or they were Mm. kind of reared in a shed or a kennel environment Mm -hmm. and they didn't have a whole lot of exposure to the world but you know, these problems can also arise from inappropriate exposure and yeah. overexposure, mm. you know, where we're just not quite getting it right. And really, we're not listening to that puppy mm. because every single one of them is an individual and we have to go, well, well what is your behavior telling us that you need right now? What is mm. your background telling us that you might have missed out on? So what are the gaps that I kind of have to plug right now? Mm-hmm. So we have to remember that too little exposure, too much exposure can also be damaging as well. So we have to be really, really careful at getting that right. Yeah. So when it comes to maybe like step by step kind of programs of these mm-hmm. kind of things, that could be a major uh, problem with those if they're, you know, treating every single puppy right the same yeah. rather than individualizing yeah. it and then of I course agree. becomes yeah um there's time constraints and all of that kind of stuff involved so maybe there's not enough time uh, afforded to be able to do it individually but definitely it should yeah. be always on um done on an individual basis yeah at any age obviously but Mm. particularly in the beginning yeah Yeah. I agree and I think that sometimes can happen as well because when we talk um professionally in relation Mm. to training and and puppy you know early puppy rearing and stuff like that we often talk about kind of age bands so we'll say three weeks to three months that's the socialization period (laughs) and that means that this must happen in during this time and that comes Mm. from work where it was kind of averaged out Mm. so like you know it was kind of given an average you know a rough kind of idea and we but we still need to rather than relying on these kind of so-called critical periods instead we should probably be thinking more in terms of sensitive periods Mm -hmm. and we should be thinking more in terms of behavior markers so what Mm -hmm. is that puppy telling us what is their behavior their behavioral responses telling us about what they need from the world right now because what the puppy is doing is telling us what part of their brain is you know is really working hard so if their eyes are opening for example Mm -hmm. and there's no point having a whole lot of visual enrichment before their eyes are open because they mm-hmm. can't see it and you know they're not able to take that information in for example mm-hmm. um so yeah and that's just a very simplistic way of seeing that but but certainly yeah we have an idea of well you know around this time puppies tend to be like this but this differs greatly from yeah. breed to breed from type to type from fa- from line to line so you will have breeders within the same breed say that their puppies tend to develop along this timeline and their you know this this uh, line from the same breed but mm-hmm. a different line to tend to develop this way um you know so there can be a lot of very vari- variation and that's why 
an individual approach is so important and monitoring each of those individual puppies and and understanding that their individual behavior um is telling us is giving us information all the time yeah so all of this stuff once everybody understands it's just they're just kind of guidelines we we have the same for our, our puppy raisers and our pups that we have our e-learning program mm-hmm. which is uh, um not done as a step by step it's more actually you know it's it's alongside the likes of myself or or Francis as the supervisors or Rose yeah. um whoever the supervisor is but it's something for them to refer to as well because yeah. there's an awful a lot that we have to do in the year um mm-hmm. and it can be quite overwhelming but um we would certainly always say to people yes this is you know what maybe you might see between the ages of three and six months old but we're looking for x before we do y um this yeah. is this is how we try and do it um because you'll you'll see and you'll hear it from volunteer to volunteer to say well you know i was with mary last week and bonzo's been on the bus already and my guy is still you know finding it difficult to go around the block and that's that's okay i mean it's all individual do you know what i mean and, yeah. and they bonzo in another few months might um, regress a little bit and go backwards mm-hmm. and then this puppy is is, uh, is flying do you know what i mean so it, it once it's done individually it, it it works much much better it's much yeah. more difficult and i know in other countries they would do it and they have maybe a uh, hundred puppies to look after every supervisor we're lucky we only have the the 30 to 35 it's easier oh, to manage all, and it? do it yeah <laughs> to do it but it's easier to do that um, to give that individual attention to the volunteer right. and their dog, whereas yeah. I, I don't know how they do it um, in other countries like that. It's not; it just wouldn't be possible to do it that way. So, uh, and that that's good in a way. But yeah, they're, they're just guidelines when people see those things. That's why it's important for them to know. It's not they're not um, gospel. So basically, all of those things that people see, age brackets and stuff like that, they are just guidelines, and it's important right. for everybody to understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, agree. Okay, cool. Right. So finally, for this one, (laughs) what age should pups be, ideally, before they're separated from their mum and their siblings? So legally, uh, it's eight weeks, but there are so many um, differences of opinion. And again, such an individual thing. So generally... I would prefer that if the puppy is in kind of an environment that really isn't going to um, contribute to um, good kind of social and environmental exposure and isn't going to, isn't an enriched environment, well, mm. then we want to get those puppies out of there as quickly as possible. Yeah. But ideally in general, and again, this can be very breed dependent. This can be very type dependent. This can be very environmental dependent, <laughs> very individual dependent. But generally I prefer the puppies stick around till they're about 10 weeks, maybe yeah. even 11 weeks. Mum might naturally wean mm-hmm. um, during that time. But also one of the big advantages tends to be that the kind of between seven and 11 weeks, puppies do a ton of biting one another. <laughs> And if you get your puppy at eight weeks, they are Mm. just peaking. And people will often say, oh, he doesn't really bite much. And then when they've settled in, so after about two weeks, so by the time puppy is about 10 weeks of age, it's like, you know, you are just a (laughs) pin cushion, you know, and everybody's crying. (laughs) And yeah, Yeah. there's so much agony. Adults and and kids. Oh, everybody. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And I mean, people are wounded. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Oh, bloody um, hurts. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Mm. And I I think we're going to talk about how you can prevent that and mitigate puppy biting in one of these two so that'll mm-hmm. help also but I tend to find that if they stay for those couple more weeks until about 10 weeks that they tend to be coming out of that 
really intense nipping stuff mm-hmm. and it's just a little bit easier out the other side for the humans now there are lots of other advantages as well it's not just that um mm. but certainly the difficulty comes because if they leave too young that can have implications for behavioral development and if they stay there too late that can also have implications for uh, behavioral development so mm. we need to make sure that the environmental conditions that the puppies are being reared in are enriching and that we're t- considering those puppies as individuals and taking into account their individual needs I suppose mm. um, in order to make sure that they can stay there successfully and those puppies then can be better prepared for their new life mm. um, as best as possible as you know as a chemical puppy can be um, because they are still very very much babies um, at that point you know and not able to do a whole lot um, but you know so it, so it is a, another kind of complicated one that there's no black and white answer no, which I you know. should be used to at this mm. stage I mean that's why every podcast is so long because if there were black and white answers Graham we'd be through this a lot faster we would have just won <laughs> one episode and that'd <laughs> be know, a wrap yeah. Yep. Can you imagine me only answering with one word or two words? No. That would be a miracle. No. <laughs> You'd know there was something wrong with me. <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah, oh, definitely. <laughs> uh, it would be time to call in the emergency services. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, But yeah, so it's, it can be a little bit more complicated that. But my preference tends to be all of the things being equal in an enriched environment that's considering each of the individual puppies. I prefer a 10 week um, going home time. Okay. Awesome. Right. (laughs) Okay. So we said earlier we'll be releasing a series of these over the coming weeks. And our next topic is all about how to choose your puppy. Very cool one, actually. Uh, And before that puppy even comes home, basically. So keep listening. And we'll see you back here again very, very soon. Brilliant. All good. Thanks a million. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks again so much for listening today, guys. And as always, thank you so much for all of the positive feedback and your suggestions. If you enjoy the show, remember to please subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating and review and recommend it to all of your friends and family to help us reach and help more people and their dogs. Also, please give us a follow on Twitter at BarksidePod and also on Instagram at BarksidePod to help grow our online community. If there are topics you would like to hear us cover in future episodes, please do share those with us on social media or simply mail us at barksidepod at gmail.com and we will do our very best to cover those in future episodes. Look after yourselves and your doggies. Thanks again for joining us and we will look forward to seeing you here again real, real soon.